It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, we kind of took a break for about two months uh, in this particular series. We kind of paused it for the semester that we had. And so I'd like to come back to it. It's this idea of the sweeping saga. And what we've been doing is we've been walking through kind of a high, high-level Bible survey, uh, just kind of looking at the major sections of Scripture, starting in creation and working all the way through uh, the, the commission, obviously after the resurrection, but all the commission and, and the, then the second coming. <clears throat> and so over the last... Uh, right before the semester started, we kind of walked through four uh, of these kind of big sections uh, through this Bible survey story kind of a thing that we've been walking through. So months ago, we were looking at the kingdom of the king, this whole idea of, of creation itself, that here is the king, and he is desiring a kingdom. Well, he has a kingdom, but he's, he's desiring a physical representation of this kingdom, and he, is, he brings about creation. Why? It's a demonstration of the king in the physical sense. And so he creates, of course, you know, the universe, he creates the animals, he creates humanity, all the kind of stuff. And it's all about the kingdom of the king. And there's a celebration of, of the kingdom and the king. And by the time we get into Genesis chapter 3, the kingdom is rejected, Adam and Eve sin, they're rebelling, they're shaking their fists in God's face, saying, hey, it's great and all, but we want to do this our own way. And they choose independence. They choose to live outside of the life of the king. And then what you see moving from that point forward is the king is really restoring. He's, he has this desire to bring the kingdom back in, uh, restore it, bring it back in a relationship, uh, reestablish the kingdom, if you will, which is this whole idea, uh, the kingdom promise. He gives the promise of the kingdom to Abraham. And, of course, as you follow down the patriarchs, you have this whole idea of, hey, Abraham, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to create in you a people that I'm going to do is such a mighty work that when all the nations see what I am doing in your life, they're going to want in on it, which is just a phenomenal thought. And that whole promise given to Abraham in the book of Genesis is really fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That in Jesus, we find our blessing. And just as Abraham was blessed as, as a sign of what was to come, you realize that the, that the heart of God for Abraham was that there was this promise that he was going to restore that which started in Abraham, that was going to continue and flow and find fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so there's this promise that, hey, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to reinitiate this thing. Hey, Abraham, it's okay. I'm going to bring about a restitution of the kingdom. I am going to come as the king to the kingdom, and I'm going to reestablish this whole thing, which is an exciting thought. So what I want to look at today, then, is this idea of the kingdom rehearsed. So again, as we're walking through the biblical nar narrative, and we're just kind of following the biblical story through, we have this idea that here is God. He is the king of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he has a kingdom. And as humanity, we have rebelled against that kingdom, and he is longing to bring about a reestablishment. Now, as you come into the time right after the patriarch, so this is right after the book of Genesis, what you begin to see is that <clears throat> at the end of Genesis, there's been a shift that's taken place, uh, that you have... Obviously, Jacob and his 12 sons, and they find themselves in Egypt. Of course, they're saved by Joseph. But the whole family is brought into this lush, fertile land in the northern part of Egypt called Goshen. And things are going really well there for a few hundred years. But this pharaoh arises that uh, 
did not know the stories of Joseph and brings about a kind of an enslavement upon the Israelites. And now all the Israelites are in bondage and slavery to Egypt. And what's interesting is that from this point forward, from this point, uh, so Exodus chapter 1, all the way through the establishment of the king, kingdom of Israel itself with Saul and David, what you have is a rehearsal. Technically, all of Scripture is a rehearsal of the truths of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we talk about here all the time is this idea that, that every page of Scripture has a focus upon Jesus. Because it's true. And I'm going to show you a few of those uh, this morning because, oh, I love this. This is so fun. So it's all a rehearsal in one sense. But there's a very specific enunciation of God looking at Moses saying, Moses, I, I'm bringing about a plan that I have this Messiah coming. He's going to reestablish the kingdom. But I want you to begin a rehearsal, if you will. It's going to be like if you've ever done a theater uh, or movies or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, what you typically do is you have rehearsals, right? In other words, uh, you, you have one major uh, production and so right before the production, you start doing rehearsals, and you're going through the lines, and, and you're memorizing things, and then you start having dress, you know, you get all dressed up, and then you have the set, and then you have all this, and it's a re repetition, repetition, repetition. Why? It's preparing you for the big event. Do you realize that's what God actually has the Israelites doing? That starting with Moses, God says, Moses, I want you to start doing these things called sacrifices. And Moses could, could have said, Why? Well, was it the sacrifice that was important? Well, yes, but it's that the, the sacrifice was leading to a greater reality, which was Jesus, who is the sacrifice. So year after year after year after year after year after year, all throughout Israelite history, history, they're going through these sacrifices, they're going through these holidays, they're going through these festivals, they're going through all these, you know, the tabernacle and the temple and the law and all that kind of stuff. Why is that so important? Because it's the dress rehearsal for the reality that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus Christ came upon the stage of time, everyone should have gone, oh, that's him. Hey, that, the, the very thing that we've been celebrating, all the stuff that we've been rehearsing for a thousand, two thousand years, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And yet, most of them missed it. But what I want to do is talk about this, this gap from Exodus basically through 1 Samuel which is this idea of the rehearsal, that God began to establish the law. God began to establish the festivals. God began to establish the order and the customs of the Hebrew culture so that everything that was going on in the life of the Israelites was a rehearsal. It was a big finger pointing to the reality of the fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. This is just an amazing thought. Colossians 2.17, Paul is speaking about the old covenant requirements, and this is what Paul says. He says these old covenant requirements or the law, or the, the festivals, all that kind of stuff, were a shadow of things to come, but find their substance in Christ. Do you realize that all the stuff that was taking place throughout the Old Testament were merely a shadow of things to come? Uh, you go outside, and there's this, you know, if you hit the time of the sun right, you see the shadow. But do you realize that if I come up to you, I don't sit there, and I, just, I don't just stare at your shadow, and I celebrate, and I start talking to your shadow, and it's just like, hey, how you doing? Because you'd be like, excuse me, I'm up here. Right? Well, it's not that the shadow is bad, but you realize that in the Old Testament, all they had was the shadow that was being cast by the sun himself. Not the sun, S-U-N, but the S-O-N, sun. That there's this shadow being cast, and it's not that the shadow was bad, that's all they had. 
But the moment that Jesus showed up, the, the substance was there in Christ Jesus. Why would you get wrapped up in the shadow? Don't get wrapped up in the shadow. Get wrapped up in the person. Just like I'm not going to talk to your shadow. I'm going to talk to you, right? So there's this idea then that what Paul's saying is, again, it's not that this was bad, but the, what was happening in the old covenant was that it was a rehearsal, if you will. It was, a, it was the shadow of things to come, which all climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, Hey, this thing was a dress rehearsal. And it's not bad. God used it. And, and hey, he moved upon people. And hey, that's all great. And the sacrifices, yeah, they worked. But you realize they, they cannot fully atone, which is why we had to do a sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice day by day by day by day. Why? Because, I mean, they atone, but it's not a full atonement. I mean, they covered sin, but hey, I mean, what, what, can, what can the blood of sheep and goats cover? So the reality was, well, there's a sacrifice that is coming and it's not that these same sacrifices which they offer year by year can actually make you perfect. There's only one sacrifice that can actually bring that about, which is Jesus. So again, there's this idea that the writer of Hebrews, especially in chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, is really walking through the Old Testament saying, hey, God gave this to us. It was great. This was wonderful. Hey, it's not that this stuff was bad, but don't get wrapped up in this stuff because they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> So what I want to do is I want to walk through a couple concepts. And again, we're just kind of doing this really high-level view of Scripture. But in this time from the book of Exodus to 1 Samuel, so from the time of the Israelites, the, the family of Jacob and the 12 sons, the 72 of them that went into Egypt, from that time all the way to the time, so the Exodus, and then the time that they established, they're in the Promised Land, and they established the king, uh, the kingdom, was, starting with Saul. I want to walk through a few key things that just showcases this idea of the rehearsal. Uh, showcases this idea of just the flow of what God was leading to that finds this fulfillment in Jesus. <clears throat> what is this idea of enslavement? Isn't it interesting that here is the, the, the family, the, the Israelites, and they're not in Egypt, but they find themselves suddenly in Egypt. And once they're in Egypt, it's not, it's not very long before they find themselves enslaved to Egypt. Now, what is really amazing to me is that as you walk through all the Scripture, Egypt becomes a symbol for slavery. Uh, Egypt becomes a symbol for sin. Uh, Egypt becomes a symbol for bondage. And so even when it's not talking about literal e uh, Egypt, the, the, there's several places, especially in the prophets, that it's referring to just like, oh, you know, uh, in Revelation, talking about Babylon. Well, it's not that there's an actual Babylon in the, and there may be a, in that point, but, but in the context, it's like, well, it's, it's what Babylon symbolizes. It's the sin and the, the prostitution, it's the givenness over to sin and, the, and all that corruption kind of stuff. Well, that's the same thing happening with this idea of Egypt. And isn't it interesting that here are the Israelites who are God's chosen people, and yet God's chosen people find themselves enslaved to someone. That sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? That you have God's people who were not enslaved, but suddenly find themselves enslaved. And isn't it interesting that here is the Israelites in Egypt, and God wants them out of Egypt. In fact, they're crying, they're praying, they're begging to get out of Egypt. Why? Egypt is miserable, as it should be. Sin is miserable. It's just bondage. It just, the more you struggle, the more the things tighten around you. 
Uh, It's a noose that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Now, we know that this literally physically happened. And yet, do you recognize that what takes place in the story of the Israelites becomes a picture or a symbol? It's a a finger pointing to the realities of what we have in Jesus Christ. Because you must recognize that you, too, are enslaved to Egypt. That you are enslaved to sin. That you are enslaved to the controls of darkness. Paul's very clear of that in, in his letters. That, hey, that we are, we are really born into sin, and we have, this, we have these handcuffs about our hands. There's a noose about our neck, and we cannot go anywhere. Why? Because we're under the power. We're, we're, on, we're enslaved unto, if I can say it, Egypt. Well, how do you get out of Egypt? Oh, it's simple. You just need the blood of a lamb. So in Exodus chapter 12, we get to the point of the story where uh, Moses is called in the early part of Exodus, and God says, Moses, I'm going to take you. I'm going to send you back into Egypt where you grew up, and I want you to rescue my people. They've been crying out, and, and I'm, I'm going to allow you to be the deliverer. And, of course, Moses kind of, you know, kind of hums and haws and just says, I don't, I don't think I can. I don't, I'm not great and eloquent of speech, and I'm not so sure. And, da, 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 da. and God says, I'm sending you. And so Moses heads back into Egypt, and he, he stands before Pharaoh, which is probably uh, his probably a good friend that he grew up with, right? Because he was in the Pharaoh's household, and by this point, my guess is the one who was Pharaoh, it seems like in the, in the context, was probably one of the kids that he grew up with as a child. And so he's looking at his old buddy and just says, hey, um, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh laughs and says, I'm not dumb. There's, there's no way. I'm giving up my entire slave force. And scholars tell us that when, when the exodus happened, there was probably two to three million Israelites. I mean, that's a huge slave force. That's like free labor. Like, I'd take that right now. We could get a lot done with it. Could you imagine what we could get done with two to three million people who are just like, I'll, I'll work for free. I mean, we could do a lot of stuff. So obviously, there's, there makes sense why Pharaoh wouldn't want to get rid of his slave force. And of course, they go through the ten plagues, or the nine plagues, and right here in chapter 12 of Exodus, God is telling Moses here, I'm, I'm about to give the greatest of all the plagues. And what I want you to do is I want you to do something a little odd. Now, we grew up with the story, so it doesn't seem weird at all. But in their context, this probably sounded just bizarre. Now, l- listen to what this says, Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> God is speaking to Moses, and he says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him take, let, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you must, you, sorry, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it upon the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So God looks at Moses and says, Moses, I want you to get all the families of Israel. I want you to take this little lamb, and I want you to bring the little lamb into your house for four days. And after four days, you're going to kill the lamb, and you're going to take the blood and put it upon the doorposts of your house. And, of course, I'm going to send my, my angel, and, and the angel's going to come by, and any house that does not have the sign of the, of, of the blood, the promise, we're going to kill the firstborn. And so here's all these people. They go, okay, sounds odd, but sure. And they grab a little lamb, they bring it to the house, and they 
keep it in the house for four days. On the fourth day, they go out and they kill, kill the lamb and they roast the lamb. They put the blood upon the doorpost and they find salvation. Now, here's just want to show you a few things. <clears throat> I want you to see Jesus in this. So this was the first Passover. <clears throat> it's interesting that as you come to the time of Jesus, do you realize that Jesus perfectly, like perfectly, fulfills Passover? Because as the writer of Hebrews says, he is our lamb. He's the perfect sacrifice. So what was going on here? Did it literally happen in the time of Moses? Yes. Of course it did. And yet God is using what happened here in the literal history of Israel as a big finger pointing to the realities of Jesus Christ that is going to happen 1,500 years later. So as you're following the story through, here's this little lamb. And the lamb had to be without blemish. There had to be no, no issues with the lamb. Why? Because the lamb could have no blemish. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And if it's not a perfect sacrifice, it actually is not a sacrifice. It atones for nothing. And we know that in Jesus, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. So back here in the story of Moses, God says that lamb has to be perfect. Well, why on earth did the little lamb have to be inside for four days? Well, God tells Moses that it's going to be one day for each of the hundred years that they were in Egypt. So they were in Egypt 400 years, therefore you keep the little lamb in your house for four days. But isn't it interesting that if you have a little lamb in your house for four days, you know what little kids are going to do. They're going to be snuggling with it. They're going to call it lamb chops. You know, they're going to, you know, they're going to be, it's going to become a little pet, right? So on, on the fourth day, the idea of actually sacrificing that lamb is actually going to be one degree more painful. It's not just going to be some random animal that you've actually had some sort of relationship with it. And it's going to be one degree more painful that the sacrifice is actually going to hurt a little bit more. That's important. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the sense of when you walk through the ten plagues that God brings, each of the ten plagues is focusing on one of the major Egyptian gods they were worshiping. And interestingly, on this very day, uh, Egypt was celebrating to their greatest god. I think it's Ammon. And Ammon was a, was a picture of a goat. And it was like the greatest god of Egypt. And it's interesting that on the greatest celebration day of Egypt, where they're celebrating this God, God says, I want you to take a little lamb and sacrifice it. And basically, it's a sign that says that your God has no power whatsoever, that you are losing your firstborn on the day of your height, biggest celebration. And yet this little lamb is bringing salvation to the Israelites. It's just interesting that you walk that through, but you can study that out later. They take the blood and they put it upon the doorpost. And a lot of scholars said it's interesting that when you, when you would put the blood upon the doorpost, it literally would form a sign of a cross because it would start to drip down and all that kind of stuff. That what you would have on the, on the doorpost isn't just merely a smear of blood. That's true. But when you would step back and look at it, and maybe you're reading into it too much. I don't, I don't know. But it's interesting that some scholars say it would, it would be in the shape of a cross. They would take the, take the little lamb and roast it upon a pomegranate pole. And what's interesting is you couldn't boil the lamb. You had to roast the entire lamb. So what they would do is they would, they would cut, sorry about the gruesomeness, but they would cut the little lamb and take the entrails of the lamb and wrap the intestines around the head of the lamb because you had to roast the whole thing. But just so that it would actually roast the meat properly, you would you'd have to remove the entrails so it would be wrapped around the head. And they would put a pomegranate pole, and they would literally put the pomegranate pole, scholars tell us, up through the lamb to hold it. But in order to hold the shoulders up, they would literally have to put a crossbar on the pole so it would hold the shoulders of the lamb up so it would actually roast properly. Isn't it a funny thought that, I mean, centuries before a cross was ever invented, that the 
Israelites were roasting a lamb with this crown of sorts upon its head on a little pomegranate cross. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that's by accident. This stuff's all over Scripture. It's amazing. And what's neat is that the pomegranate is, a, is symbolic of royalty and priesthood. You realize that is what Jesus is. He is he's both king and priest. First uh, Peter 1.19 says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. <clears throat> By the time you get to the time of Jesus... This Passover thing, of course, they've been celebrating this year after year after year after year. And so what they would do is, during the time of Jesus, is that every family, you know, the, that was one of the festivals they had to come down into Jerusalem. And so these families, Jerusalem would swell with population. And these families would bring their little lambs, and they would put a, put a little sign around the lamb's neck so they can at least identify the, the family of that lamb. They'd bring that lamb to the priest, and the priest would slaughter it <clears throat> on the, in the temple, and then they would bring the, bring the animal back so they could roast it. And it would have the little name placard of the family around the lamb's neck. It's interesting, though, that every family would bring a lamb. But on the day of Passover, there would be the lamb sacrificed for all of Israel. Now, what they would do for the lamb of Israel, this is like the one lamb that they would sacrifice on behalf of all of Israel. What they would do is they would go down to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was the place of shepherds. And not just any kind of shepherds. These were the priestly shepherds. So in Bethlehem, that's where they tended the little flock that they would have to do all the sacrifice. Probably not a little flock. It's probably a massive flock, actually, because there was daily sacrifices. But it was, the, it was the flock that they would take down to the temple for the sacrifices. And so one of the priests, during the week right before Passover, they would come down a few days before Passover and go down to Bethlehem, which is about five miles from Jerusalem, and they would start to investigate all the little lambs. And they'd be looking to make sure that whichever the lamb was for that year was a perfect, perfect sacrifice. Do you know when they, do you know when this took place? The investigation of the little lambs in Bethlehem for the Passover lamb was happening at the same time Jesus was going through the trials before the high priest. In other words, just as the priest was down in Bethlehem looking for the perfect lamb and he was scrutinizing and examining the perfect lamb, Guess what the high priest was doing with Jesus? The high priest was in trial with Jesus, scrutinizing and looking him over and trying to find flaw. Isn't that interesting? Now, when the priest found the perfect lamb, do you know what they would do? They would take the little lamb, bring it into one of the caves, put it in a manger, and they would swaddle the lamb. They would put swaddling clothes around the lamb. And the reasoning is, is they would want to lock all the limbs of the lamb, because as they carried it the five miles up to Jerusalem, they didn't want the little lamb to fall and get hurt and break a leg and therefore could not be the sacrifice. It's not by accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and was swaddled and laid in a manger. And isn't it interesting that during Jesus' birth, the angels come and they look at these shepherds. Who were the shepherds? Probably priestly shepherds. And they said, hey, this is going to be a sign for you. You're going to go and find a child laying in a manger. And we're like, why is that the sign? But for a priestly shepherd, this is huge. So could you imagine these shepherds? They come into this probably a cave or some sort of little, you know, it's a, you know, a, a garage, if you will, or whatever. You know, and, and so here's, here's this little barn. And they go into the stable, 
And these, shepherd, these priestly shepherds see this baby who has been swaddled lying in a manger. What would be going on in the shepherd's mind? The shepherd would be saying, this is what we do for the sacrificial lambs. That this is the sign for you, oh dear shepherds, that this is the lamb of God laid before you. Isn't this amazing? This is so cool to me. And so here is Jesus. He's being examined by the high priest at the same time that they're examining the little, little, little sheep. And then Jesus, if you remember the whole story, of course he is beaten you know, with Pilate, he's, he's scourged and all that kind of stuff, and they place a crown of thorns upon his head. Do you know what a crown of thorns is? A crown of thorns is a sign of the curse from Genesis chapter 3. That when Adam and Eve rebel and they choose independence, God says, I'm going to produce thorns and thistles and all this kind of stuff. That here is Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, and upon his brow is the very sign of the curse upon which, for which he is dying for. That he is bearing the curse upon himself. Not just in a spiritual sense, but also in a physical sense. And then isn't it interesting that just as these little lambs would always have this family name around their necks so that the families can make sure they get their lamb back, did you realize Jesus had a name placard at the crucifixion? Listen, listen, listen to this. I just think this is hilarious. Pilate, of course, is a pushover. We understand that. Even Roman history says that Pilate was just, he, he, was, he, was, he was easily manipulated. In fact, the reason Pilate was even in Jerusalem is because he got in trouble with Rome so many times. They said, this is your last chance, buddy. We're sending you down to a very hostile area. You deal with them. And if you have any problems with those people, we are going to kill you. This is like your last chance. So could you imagine Pilate? He's, he's political. He's playing all the signs. But he's a pushover. So the high priest come to Pilate and say, we want this guy dead. And he's like, why don't, why don't you just deal with it yourself? And they're like, we can't, we just can't kill anybody. You're going to have to do it. And he's like, well, I, don't, I find no fault in this man. And they're like, kill him or we're going to tell Caesar. That's basically the ultimatum that they gave him. And of course he says, well, all right, but I'm going to wash my hands of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Just don't, don't yell. Don't cause a ruckus. So Pilate crucifies Jesus. And in so doing, he puts his placard up above Jesus on the cross. Now, this is what it says. Uh, John 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. So here are the Pharisees, they look at what was written, and they go, we don't like that. Pilate changed the sign. Now, the one time, I mean the one time, this guy gets a backbone. It's over a sign. And Pilate answers him and says, what I have written, I have written. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? He's willing to kill the guy. I mean, he's willing to just say, hey, I'll, I'll be pushed over and I'll do whatever you want, but don't you, hey, don't you touch my signs. <laughs> Isn't that dumb? Do you know why the Pharisees had such a huge problem with this sign? It's not for what it said, it's for what it meant. In rabbinical teaching, it was very common that you would do, uh, you know, you would, you, would have, you would have something out there, and for memory techniques, of course, you know, you'd, uh, you'd pull the first letter, what's that called again? An acrostic, thank you. Uh, so, you know, you do those kind of things. That was, a, that was a normal way of teaching, and they would actually hide truths in acrostics. So they would create these sentences, 
And they would just expect the students to look at it and go, oh, I know what you're saying. Because they would actually see the acrostic without actually using the acrostic. Does that make sense? So when the, when the Pharisees show up to the cross and they see this title hanging above Jesus, do you know what the acrostic actually spells? I'll give it to you. So here's, here's the, here it is in Hebrew. It literally is the name of God, the unspeakable name of God. So think about this. Just as the little lambs had a little family placard with the family name around its neck for the sacrifice, here is Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, hanging up on a cross, and he has a placard above his head with the family name on it, the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? That is so cool to me. Which is why the Pharisees were in an uproar. And by the way, if this helps, you read Hebrew right to left. So if you're wondering why it looks backwards, it's, we, we, you read it backwards. Now, isn't it, I'll add one more thing to this, it's cool. Uh, when you look at this, th just this name, Yahweh, by the way, when, when you look at it in the ancient Hebrew, ancient Hebrew was done in, like, pictures. So, you know, we have letters today, but it was done in pictures, and each of the pictures meant something. They had, they had meaning. Uh, for example, uh, Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, was the picture of, a, of an ox, and it literally symbolized strength. Bet, which is the second letter, uh, it, it kind of looks like a... It's like a swirl wheel kind of, but it's, it's this idea of a house or a tent. And when you put the two together, ab, aleph, bet, it's the strength of the house, which is the word father. Because what? The father is the strength of the house. So in Hebrew, ab, father, literally means the strength of, of the house. So you can really learn Hebrew just by the pictures and what the pictures mean. When you look at what the pictures of this word is, this is what it means. Hand. Behold, nail, behold. That's not by accident. So you realize here is Jesus upon the cross, and he has a name placard above his head that literally is declaring who he is. I am Yahweh. The prophecy in Zechariah says, you will look upon me whom you have pierced. But what's neat about the prophecy in Zechariah is that there's a Hebrew word that we do not translate. And we don't translate it because we don't know how to translate it. It's, they will look upon me, Aleph Tav. The letters, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. They will look upon me, Aleph Tav, whom you have pierced. And we never translate it because there's no way in English to translate it. It makes no sense. But do you know what it's actually saying? Aleph Tav. It would be like us saying, they will look upon me, A-Z, whom they have pierced. Like AZ. But if I said it in Greek, it actually make more sense to you. Because in Greek, it's actually a title for Jesus. The first letter of Greek is Alpha, the last letter is Omega. Do you realize in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in Hebrew, in the prophecy of Zechariah, about this passage, that here's Jesus upon the cross, they will look upon me. The Alpha and the Omega, the Olive and the Tav, the AZ, whom you have pierced. Who are they staring at? God Almighty. I'll just presume your faces are pondering. Isn't that amazing? I just, this stuff is not by accident. Why? Because all of this that's going on throughout Israelite history is a rehearsal of the realities that find their fulfillment in Jesus. It says that at the death of Jesus, he gave up his spirit, and it says the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Now, it's interesting that this veil, this, this veil was huge. It was 30 feet by 30 feet. But they said it was as thick as a man's hand. It was about four inches thick. And the reason they wanted it four inches thick is because a little breeze blows into the temple. They didn't want the, they didn't want the veil to be like, and get, you know, let God out. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean we're going to keep God in there. So, hey, let's, hey, this is not to move. So think about this. If the veil was going to be torn, from a human sense, you'd have to tear it from the bottom because there's no way you could be 30 feet up and just start tearing it. But it's four inches thick. How are you going to tear fabric that's four inches thick? Here's, that's impossible. Literally, God's hands takes the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place and only tears it in two from top to bottom when Jesus dies. Symbolizing two things. One, we now have access in to the very near presence of God. But God now is coming out because he wants to indwell his people. But it's interesting. When you look at the veil that was torn, when you go back into the old covenant, because again, we're talking about this idea that God was giving Moses all these rehearsal things. And God says, hey, I want you to build the tabernacle just like this. And gives the dimensions and says, I want you to put these things in the tabernacle. Did you know that everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus? There's one entrance into the tabernacle, the east gate. There's only one means to enter into the presence of God, the east gate. Guess who's the gate? Jesus says, I am the gate. No man may come to the Father except through me. I am the way. I'm the single way into life. That when you come in, that he is, he is the, the labor that brings cleansing. He is the altar that is the sacrifice. In fact, he is a sacrifice. He's the priest given the sacrifice. He's the altar itself. That you come in, that he is the... He's the light stand. He is the showbread. That he is the altar of incense. He is the ark. He's the veil. And when God was giving Moses the instructions for the veil, he says, I want you to make the veil out of blue, scarlet, and purple thread, which are the most royal colors. It's the most, I mean, it's the most expensive colors of that day. But in the book of Hebrews, it says that when Jesus, uh, when Jesus died and the, and the veil was torn, that what was torn, that veil, was actually symbolic of Jesus' flesh. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Isn't it interesting? While Jesus was on the cross, he's been beaten and bruised. What color is his body? Blue, purple, and scarlet. That's the same color as the veil that was torn and ripped in two. Yeah, because that's not by accident. Because all of this points to Jesus. Even the time that Jesus dies. Look at this passage, Matthew 27. It says, it was at the ninth hour when Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Why does the gospel writers give us the time that Jesus died? Like, why is that significant? Why, why, is, why is three in the afternoon so important? Well, do you know what was happening at three in the afternoon down at the temple? Three in the afternoon down at the temple, the high priest was standing there with the Passover lamb for that year. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, at the ninth hour, the high priest would come to the little lamb and slip the throat of the, the Passover lamb, sacrificing it for the whole nation. Do you realize that Jesus is fulfilling Passover perfectly? And that's just one little picture in the Old Testament. This whole thing is a rehearsal. Literally walking through the reality that this is all pointing to Jesus Christ. So get this idea. Here is the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. How are they rescued? How are they saved? By the blood of a lamb. Hey, you are enslaved. You are in bondage to sin and death. How are you saved? By the blood of a lamb. His name's Jesus. Now, where do you go after you get out of Egypt? The wilderness. 
Did you know that wilderness was not supposed to, supposed to be a 40-year event? <laughs> it's actually only a two-week journey at most. So why did it take the Israelites 40 years to get into the promised land? Well, they got lost. And they, you know, Moses let him. He's a guy. He doesn't ask directions. So he has no idea where they're going. No, that, obviously that, that's not true, right? Why were, they, why were they lost for 40, or why were they wandering for 40 years? Disobedience. And wilderness, biblically, is a proving ground. Where was Jesus tempted? The wilderness. It's a proving ground. Hey, where did Elijah go for proving? The wilderness. Where did Moses go for 40 years for proving? The wilderness. Do you realize that there's this whole flow of what's taking place in the wilderness is proving? And you have to be proven. Hey, you get out of bondage to sin and death, you realize that there's going to be a proving in your soul. Now, that's not supposed to be 40 years. It's supposed to be a relatively quick journey. And one great scholar said it took, uh, I'm going to say this, oh, it took four hours to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. There's a true reality about that, that you must be sanctified, you must be purged. And where do you go after the wilderness? The promised land. What's the promised land all about? Oh, it's all that God has established. It's all God has promised. The fruit of the land are massive, if you ever studied it. The fruit of the land, they carry, there was one cluster of grapes, and they had to carry it on a pole between two men. Either these were really weak men, or this was some massive grapes. One cluster of grapes. This is a land of promise. Hey, this is a land full of milk and honey. Hey, this is a land that all, all God had promised. Now, there are 31 hostile empires in the land of promise that they have to deal with. So it's not free of like, oh, relaxation. It's battle. What's interesting in our modern times is we presume that the promised land is heaven. In fact, our, our old gospel songs, or our southern gospel songs, have this idea that, hey, when we cross the Jordan, we'll reach the other side, and woo, glory days. And we're like, I, I listen, and it's music, whatever, I guess, but... You realize the whole mentality of, hey, when I die, I'll cross the Jordan is actually not true because you need to cross the Jordan now. Hey, you are not meant to live in the wilderness. And, hey, God does things in the wilderness. We understand. Shoes don't wear out. Probably hard for the ladies, right? Hey, clothes don't wear out. Hey, a manna from heaven, quail in the bush. I mean, all, all that's phenomenal. But you weren't made for the wilderness. The wilderness is miserable. Uh, this last January, I was in Israel, and we went down to the wilderness right, where, where they wandered. And it's amazing. This is January. This is cool season, right? I'm going to be there in a couple weeks. It's going to be August. It's going to be warm. <laughs> Probably like 120. I mean, it's going to be warm. And uh, we're, uh, we were wandering the wilderness in January. This was January. It's probably still in the 80s or so. And it's just pure desert. I mean, it's just, it, there's not a tree in sight. It's just bleh. And uh, we were doing some hiking. It was really beautiful in its own way. And at the end of the hike, we had to walk over to the bus. And as we were walking, it was like, man, it was a 15-minute walk or so. And it's amazing. As we were starting to walk, people were just starting to grumble. They're like, how much longer is it? And is there air con are they going to have the air conditioning on in the bus? And, and I need some water. Do we have some water? I really need some water. And I started to giggle because I'm thinking, this has been 15 minutes. Moses had a huge issue. Two million people for 40 years. And they kept grumbling and grumbling. And, of course, I read those passages. I'm like, guys, hello, wake up. You know, like, why are you grumbling? I know why they're grumbling. They're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is meant to be miserable because you're not meant to live in the wilderness. This is my personal opinion, but do you, do, I, I honestly believe the reason 
why over 80% of the teenagers are leaving the church by the time they hit college is because we have nothing to offer them. Uh, that we, we have camped out on the, in the wilderness side of the promised land, or on the, on the, not in the promised land, but on the, on the outside of the promised land as a church. And yeah, God's doing some neat stuff, but we're in the wilderness. The wilderness is miserable. No wonder teenagers don't want what we have because we're not living in the fullness of what God has offered. What's the promised land? But when you look at the promised land, it's literally the spirit-filled life. It is the life of a Christian. Your life is a place of abundance and a fruitfulness of life. That's in the promised land. You don't have that in the wilderness. Now you have to get through the wilderness to get to the promised land. But you were meant for the promised land. And you realize that if we as a church were living fully in the promised land, people would crave to be in on this thing. And just as you all know, the moment you're a Christian doesn't mean life becomes, you know, bunny rabbits and sunflowers and skittles falling from the sky, as awesome as that would be. That's not the Christian life's a battle. And just as the Israelites went into the promised land, and suddenly they faced a place called Jericho, and then they had a place called Ai, and then they had these, there's 31 hostile empires coming against their soul. Or, sorry, against them as people. Just like you have these empires in your soul that must be dealt with. They must be removed. Jericho must fall down in your life. But all, do you see how all this becomes a picture? This is a rehearsal for where God is going. Hey, you are made for the promised land. Get out of Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Hey, get through the wilderness. But live in the promised land. And maybe one other quick statement. If you get stuck in the wilderness, you realize Egypt starts looking appealing. Which is what the Israelites were doing. They're like, oh, if we could just go back, we'll be slaves. There's leeks and onions. Which doesn't sound very good. But that seemed obviously better than what they had in the wilderness. And anything will look better than the wilderness. Because it's the wilderness. We're not made for the wilderness, but you have to go through the wilderness. You were made for the promised land, which is Jesus. So think about this. As we come to the time of Moses up through the, up through the kingdom, and of course the whole Old Testament is this, but there's this rehearsal of the kingdom. There's a, there's a picture. It's a big finger pointing to the realities of Jesus Christ. The entire law, what does it point to? Jesus and his perfection and his perfect righteousness. The tabernacle and the temple and everything within it, what does it point to? Jesus, the king. The holy days or the holidays, the festivals, what do they point to? Jesus. By the way, just as Jesus perfectly fulfilled Passover, do you realize that the seven key feasts of God, Jesus perfectly fulfills them. I mean, perfectly studied out. It is, it is it's just mind-boggling. The Hebrew culture, even the culture itself, is a picture of Jesus. The geography of the land is a picture of Jesus. All of this is a rehearsal. All of this is trying to get, get the people to realize, hey, there's a big deal going on. The king is coming, folks. The king is coming. Hey, be prepared. Be ready. Why? Because the king is coming. And year after year after year after year after year, there was a rehearsal. I'm just going to give you two other quick things. Do you realize that even how the Israelites were encamped around the tabernacle? So for, here they are in the wilderness, and uh, they're encamped, and for 40 years they're encamped around the tabernacle, moving around for 40 years. <clears throat> it's interesting that there's 12 tribes. But when you come to the book of Numbers, they start numbering the tribes, and they tell you actually how many people were in the tribes. And of course, if you're like most people, we just kind of skim over it like, <laughs> all right, there's people there, good. <laughs> but do you realize there's a lot of significance in it? For example, on the east side of the tabernacle, there were three tribes, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. 
Now, each of the tribes had their own banner. They had this flag that they had, right? And, of course, if you even go to Israel today, you can still go to those regions that they were divvied up the land, and you can still see the banners. It's pretty cool, or at least the, uh, the pictures of them. But the tribes on the east side of the tabernacle all came under one major banner, which was Judah's banner, which was a lion. On the south side, you had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, and they all came under Reuben's banner, which was the man. On the west side, you had Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and they all came under Ephraim's standard or banner, which was the ox. And on the north side, you had Dan, Asher, Naphtali, and they came under Dan's standard of the eagle. Now, I just think this is so cool that encamped around the tabernacle, you have the banners of a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. And if you know your biblical story well, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's talking about the cherubim. And cherubim have four faces. Face of a lion, face of a man, face of an ox, and a face of an eagle. Do you know what's above the ark in the, in the, in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies? Two cherubim. They have four faces. Now, what you want to do that, I don't know. But I think it's cool. But when you actually put those numbers together, do you realize that it looks like something? Uh, really quick, a story. Balak, king, this king, uh, calls for this prophet Balaam and says, I want you to come and I want you to curse these people for me. There's this nuisance down in the wilderness. and I just, I, I hate them and I want you to curse them. So he hires Balaam, gives him a lot of money. Balaam comes up, of course, you know the whole talking donkey story. And Balaam comes up and he sees Balak and Balak says, see those people over there? They're called Israelites. I want you to curse them. And Balaam says, I'll do my best. Uh, but I can only speak what God gives me to speak. And so he goes in and prays and he comes back and says, I think I'm ready. Here I go. And he goes over there and he, out comes blessing. And Balak says, I'm, I'm not paying you to give them a blessing. They're already blessed. Curse them. And Balaam says, hey, I'm sorry. I can only speak what God gives me, but hey, I'll, I'll try because I really want your money. Now, let me go back. Let me go pray and see what I can do, and I'll come back with a curse. So he goes and prays and comes back, and he stands up. Okay, I think I'm ready. Here I go, and pssst, out comes blessing. And Balak says, maybe you just need to see the people. So Balak grabs Balaam, and they come up upon this ridge, and they're looking down upon the Israelites. Do you know what they would have seen? This. That when you take the encampments of each of the numbers of the tribes and you put them around the tabernacle, it actually forms a perfect cross. Now, were crosses invented? No. But it's still a cross. It's a sign of something. Think about this. Here is Balak looking at Balaam saying, see them down there? Yeah. Those people are my enemies. And I want you to pronounce a curse. Do you realize that what Balaam would have been looking at was a cross? And here's Balaam, he goes and prays, and says, I'm going to pronounce a curse upon that. By the way, that's already cursed. But he comes up, and the only thing that he can speak is blessing. Isn't that interesting? That's not by accident. Why? We're rehearsing something. One of my favorite stories in the book of Joshua is, uh, I think I have it right here. I think it's Joshua chapter 3. Joshua, this is after the 40 years, and Moses has just died, and Joshua leads the people to the border of the Jordan River. They're about to cross in, and they're going to attack Jericho. And there's a whole bunch of great stuff in the middle of the scene. But as they're about to cross over the Jordan, Joshua has the priests who are holding the ark step into the Jordan River. Now, the ark, you recognize, is a picture of something. It's symbolic of the presence of God himself. Now, think about this. When the priests who are holding the ark step into the Jordan River, the very presence of God steps into the middle of that river. The water stops. And it makes this statement. Joshua chapter 3, 14 through 16. 
So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows at its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, filled and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite of Jordan. Do you hear what it's saying? Here are the priests holding the ark, which is symbolic of the presence of God. And they step into the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. And the moment that the priests are in the middle of the Jordan River, the water stops. And where does it stop from? Well, it stopped all the way up there from a town called Adam. That's odd. But that's not by accident. The water stopped from Adam, and where did it stop flowing to? The sea, the Dead Sea. Think about this. That which flows from Adam and only leads to death, the moment that the presence of God steps in the middle of that, it stops. Isn't that beautiful? What flows from Adam unto death? Sin. What flows from Adam unto death? Destruction. Hey, it's that enslavement idea. How do you get out of enslavement? The blood of a lamb. You put the presence of God smack dab in the middle of that, and that which flows from Adam and only leads to death stops. See, everything that's going on in this Old Testament story, did it literally happen? Yes. But it's, a, it's, it's all a picture of a re- greater reality. It's all a big finger pointing at one thing. His name is Jesus Christ. This is all about a rehearsal of the kingdom, that God is preparing his people so that when Jesus showed up on the scene, they would go, there he is. There he is! Let us not miss it either. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, you're, oh, you're the focus. Uh, you're the delight. Lord, may we not miss you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, just as you had Moses and all the Israelites begin to rehearse year after year after year after year, this phenomenal reality of the kingdom, so that when you showed up on the scene, there was without a doubt that you were who you said you were. Lord, you are right now who you say you are. And let us not miss it. Lord, somehow may we just behold you afresh and may we just be captured and captivated by you. And may we realize that you are the king and you have a kingdom. You have a purpose and a plan. Lord, I'm just... I just constantly marvel at the reality that you are the fulfillment of everything in Scripture. That what was taking place over and over and over again was a, was a greater reality focused upon you. So may our lives, likewise, Jesus, be so centered upon you. May you be preeminent. Would you be the very focus? Would you be our delight? Would you be our love? Would you be the very center of who we are? That when someone looks at our life, the only way they can explain our lives is Jesus that somehow the world cannot understand how we're living outside of you. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. 
please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon, live and in person. Thanks for listening.